Chaos, confusion, and camouflage. How not to handle the aftermath of a not-so-natural disaster in Libya. At age 92, Rupert Murdoch finally steps down and puts his eldest son in charge of his media empire. It's the stuff TV shows are made of. And the journalist on a mission to preserve Nigerian history as it was first reported in print. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news. We cover the way the news is covered. Libyans are still counting their dead after a colossal flood hit the eastern city of Derna, wiping out whole neighborhoods, entire families within minutes. Once reporters descended upon the scene and Libyans learned about some of the bad decision-making that contributed to the disaster, heartbreak gave way to anger. Libya has been a politically divided country ever since 2014, three years after the Arab Spring brought down Muammar Gaddafi. The military figures who now rule the East have been spooked by the journalistic scrutiny. They've ordered some reporters to leave the city. They've arrested others. In the aftermath of a natural disaster, officials can usually expect a degree of goodwill from citizens and reporters alike. However, some clumsy attempts to spin the narrative and stop journalists from doing their jobs have only highlighted the incompetence and illegitimacy at the top, uniting a politically fractured citizenry, more and more of which is now opposed to those who hold power. Libya's eastern government has told journalists to leave the city of Derna, where thousands of people have been killed in Civilians have restricted the number of journalists allowed access to Derna. What we've seen this week in Derna is a very systematic attempt to shut down the coverage on the crisis. The tools they're using are the tools they know. And so it's shut down, lockdown, and absolutely kill the story. It's Dictator 101, right? You don't know how to spin this, you just kill the story. And so the international journalists will be spared because they'll just be removed from the country. Local journalists, local activists will not. That, in a nutshell, is the story in eastern Libya. After trying unsuccessfully to spin the narrative and deflect questions on negligence, lack of foresight, and infrastructural failings that appear to have worsened the flooding and cost lives, the authorities have been ordering certain journalists to leave Derna. Throw in a communications shutdown through an internet blackout, and it adds up to a sustained attempt to contain the story. They've actually shut down the internet from uh, eastern Libya, claiming through their media outlets that this was a severed cable in the city and that it's another part of the natural or unnatural man-made disaster that happened last week, when the reality is that sources in Tripoli from the Libyan telecommunications network have said that this was an ordered shutdown by the authorities. And of course, emotions are high. <laughs> People have lost 17, 18, 20 or more of, uh, members of their family. And they're now beginning to ask those uh, critical questions. Why did the dams burst? Why were they not uh, maintained? Who is responsible? 
who we have the other issues, of course, about the order to vacate. So they're asking for culpability, they're asking for accountability, and this has become political now. The authorities in control of Derna and their military wing, the Libyan National Army, or LNA, did not crack down on journalism or silence social media right away. First, they tried to influence the coverage in a divine, dismissive way, with multiple officials depicting the floods as God's will. The LNA's leader, Khalifa Haftar, went on a carefully managed photo op tour of Derna. Haftar has put his son Saddam in charge of the disaster response, which is fitting since the son's encounter with a British journalist would prove disastrous in itself, an exercise in deception right down to the language they were speaking. A lot of uh, criticism that it could have been prevented by the Libyan authorities. What's your view on that? But he gives that short shrift. This is a person who was brought up in the United States. We assume that he's fluent in English. He chose to hide behind an interpreter, refused to talk in English, looked very uncomfortable. And when he was finally asked uh, some deep and uh, meaningful questions, he sidetracked them and, and drove off. This is a, a regime that is not used to independent uh, investigative journalism. That interaction with Alex Crawford is the perfect depiction of the delusion of impunity. He genuinely believed he could sit there with a journalist of that caliber and be able to spin the everything is fine line. Has there been a big enough international response or you just don't want the international response? Everything's fine for now, he tells us. And I think what we've seen since isn't disconnected. Within 24 hours of that becoming worldwide, we've seen the expulsion of journalists and the shutdown. It's terrifying because the ego of a man can impact on the outcome for a nation. Reporters Without Borders, which ranks Libya at 149th of the 180 countries on its Press Freedom Index, describes it as an informational black hole. Since 2014, three years after the fall and execution of Muammar Gaddafi, Libya has been in varying states of civil war, fought mainly between forces loyal to a Tripoli-based government in the West and the LNA in the East. Two and a half years ago, with the UN's help, a ceasefire was agreed. Elections were promised, but keep getting delayed. Scores of journalists have fled, and many of those who remain have been forced or have chosen to take sides. The LNA and the breakaway parliament to which it is allied has never had this kind of story to contend with before, this kind of scrutiny, and it shows. There is an attempt to control and muffle and gag local voices whilst allowing what purports to be independent journalism there. Media outlets well known to Libyans, Al Marsad, Al Masar television, a new outlet, and Al Hadath television, all of which are considered to be propaganda mouthpieces for the LNA and their message is to downplay what has really happened. You often hear them talking about the unification of Libyans with piano and, and sad music to show the human suffering behind all of this. Up until now, 
they operated with such impunity, they didn't even have to counter a narrative. They could do what they wanted to do and get away with it. And if we're looking for little victories in this, this is a victory because when you feel like you can get away with something, you don't need to talk about it. The fact that you're trying to silence the media is an indication that things have changed. And I don't think we've really felt this moment of change in Libya to this degree since 2011, where people aren't buying this anymore. There's a history in Libya, you know, we come out of 40 odd years of the Gaddafi rule, uh, there is not a culture of free independent media and uh, post-2011 uh, that is still very much the case. Then at South, under the Haftar security forces, it's completely different to the uh, Libyan government in Tripoli. Even Western Libyans had to have permission to go in, international media had to get clearance to go in. So you had the double whammy of a split uh, political regime and reporting on a disaster. Derna is now a city of the dead. Those journalists permitted to remain in Derna know that they are being watched closely by a regime whose media strategy seems to change by the day. After a week of poor messaging and expelling reporters, press briefings are now provided daily, fronted by a journalist from one of those pro-government channels. As for the political figures who have been calling for unity in the face of this disaster, that may come back to haunt them. There are signs of Libyans coming together in opposition on what needs to change in a way that cannot bode well for their unelected leaders. We can feel a new pulse that is reverberating and that rhythm can be felt from Derna all the way to Tripoli and Benghazi. It's very reminiscent of the Arab Spring which started in 2011 from the east of Libya. But the rhythm of that is also being felt from the trembling authorities in eastern Libya who are now clamoring to shut down communications. And then the call for Libyans themselves to not use this time to be critical, but to use this time as a moment of reflection. The simple message really is, don't think, be quiet, and forget about the individuals that are responsible for this. And this is particularly dangerous in a place like Libya because everything is politicized in the country, including the media. Libyan credible journalists are being disappeared, are being detained and are being threatened. It's international journalists that will now have to tell this story, and when they leave, it will be journalists from within Libya that are gonna face the penalty. Moving to the US now, and a real-life story of succession. Rupert Murdoch is handing over the reins of his mammoth news empire, and Johanna Hoos is here with the details. That's right, Richard. This past Thursday, Fox Corporation and News Corp announced that Rupert Murdoch, after seven decades in the media business, is retiring, and his eldest son, Lachlan, will be the new man in charge. Since inheriting his father's newspaper business in his native Australia in the 1950s, Murdoch Sr. built a media conglomerate consisting of hundreds of news outlets in dozens of countries, including Fox News and The Wall Street Journal in the US. Rupert Murdoch is 92, so media watchers knew that this was coming, and he had already tapped Lachlan as his successor, making him the CEO of Fox. But the timing is interesting. Fox News, the most-watched cable news channel in the US, has been the subject of a number of lawsuits over the station's coverage of the 2020 presidential election, an amplification of baseless conspiracy theories about that election being stolen from Donald Trump. They rigged the election in front of 
all of us, and nobody did anything about it. The first of those legal cases, brought by voting machine manufacturer Dominion, saw Fox settle out of court for almost $800 million. That was agreed after internal communication among Fox employees revealed that senior execs and on-air hosts considered the stolen election claims were bogus, but feared the effects such news would have on the network's ratings. And there's another lawsuit coming, launched by Smartmatic, another voting machine company, claiming Fox has defamed its reputation. The ask there, $2.7 billion. Rupert Murdoch says he will remain as chairman emeritus at Fox and News Corp. Not that Lachlan needs much guidance. His politics are much more closely aligned to his father's than his more centrist siblings, Prudence, James and Elizabeth. So it's unlikely that much will change, at least for now. When Murdoch Sr. does eventually die, though, and the family business is left in the hands of four kids with ideological differences, each with one vote on the company's future, the direction of the Murdoch empire could become a lot more successionesque. Thanks, Joe. There is an interesting exercise underway in Nigeria. It's about newspaper reporting that goes back many decades. It examines journalism as the first rough draft of history. Newspapers that delivered news big and small back in the day provide glimpses into our past, important stories that can disappear if not properly preserved, archived. That is what this Nigerian project is all about, digitizing 50 years of newspaper front pages, making them accessible to anyone online and safeguarding journalism against being forgotten. And this isn't the work of some aging historian looking to make the past relevant. The journalist leading this project is a millennial, part of a generation of Nigerians digging into their country's history and politics. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now, with a story of Nigeria's past in print and the efforts to save it from being forever lost. Newspapers were the most effective repository of history because journalists show up every day to collect the mundane and magnificent stories that, that make up a time or a zeitgeist. They collect everything. They capture the picture of a time um, or the narrative of a time in a nation. Um, whether it is the ads, whether it is the obituaries and the headlines, the fashion columns. Talk to Fuad Lawal about newspapers and his love for them is palpable. According to him, nothing compares to their range. The way they report stories big and small, national and local. The eclectic mix from popular recipes and train or TV schedules to momentous developments in a nation's history. For Lawal, it was during his time as a journalist when it struck him just how much Nigerians were missing out on because there was no accessible, digitized repository of Nigerian newspapers from decades past. Time and again, he found himself on a deadline, researching a story and struggling to find historic Nigerian news reporting. I had better luck going to the New York Times and finding stuff about Nigerian like history than finding it here. Uh, and so the, the question just became like, what does it look like um, if we actually had our own perspectives? The New York Times perspective is like, of course, valid, but like, what does it look like for us to even like talk? And that's pretty much where it began. Since 
2020, Lawal and a group of others have poured their efforts into building the Nigerian newspaper archive of their dreams. It has involved fundraising campaigns, calling newspaper offices to talk about digitizing the stacks of papers they have, dealing with copyright law, buying an industrial-grade scanner. It's not that Nigeria does not have any official archives. Between what's already in national and state archives in the country and the historic documentation in museums and libraries across Britain, which colonized Nigeria for a hundred years since the 1860s, historic records are available. What's missing, though, is a comprehensive, navigable newspaper archive. We must emphasize that what we call the archives in Nigeria were government official documents that ended in the 1950s. Many of these newspapers are not finding the official archives. And when you find them, they collapse very quickly because of the nature of the papers used at that time. The fact that you are not keeping them well. So this is also a restoration project. It's a nationalist project. Archiving gives a chance to get direct contact. What does it look like to get a sense of what people were thinking in the 70s or the 80s? Something that happens, right, with history is that you remember the big stories. You remember the thing that blew off the world. There are some stories from the 60s, 70s, 80s that we still know. What about the everyday stories? What about the librarian that was earning in dollars or euros because nera, one era is one dollar? What about people looking for jobs in the 60s, the 70s? These everyday stories, right? I'm missing because archiving doesn't exist. The modern history of Nigerian newspapers is closely tied to the country's century under colonial rule. Christian missionaries, British officials, Nigerian activists all got involved in publishing. Papers like the West African Pilot, Lagos Weekly Record, The Daily Times were all active well before independence in the 1960s. After that came papers like Vanguard, The Guardian, and Punch. While it's the reporting of seminal moments that often gets all the attention, the journalism beyond the front page tells some of the most compelling stories. Something that was very popular in the 70s was executions, right? The way executions used to work then is that you take your stubborn children, you take everybody that you can't get to comply, you take your employees sometimes who you are worried will steal your money, you march all of them to the beach and you say, this is how you're going to end up if you continue with your bad behavior. Um, it was such a big event in Lagos to execute people at Babbage. There's this Amrabah, quite prolific, in the 70s, um, they called him the doctor. He was executed on a walk there, I think on Monday. And, um, and the headline goes, um, would you be lying if you told your boss you're taking a day off because you wanted to see the doctor? Uh, <laughs> um, that, that man, was, when, when he rose that head, I'm sure he looked at him and was like, damn! There is a generation of Nigerians, and this is an important point to note, who have never seen Nigeria in its good moment. All they've seen is decadence, corruption, political failure, political rascality. That's all, all what they have seen in their life. The moment of hope, when in the 50s that the British were packing their luggage, the jubilation that the British were going, that element of the 1950s, the hope 
that those newspapers capture. I mean, when young people read those, they'll be astonished. Remember, this newspaper will capture a moment in which Nigerians were colonial subjects. But in the 50s, they became citizens of the world. It's going to bring enormous pride to a generation. Of course, it's also going to bring anger that instead of their country rising, progressing very rapidly, they will see a picture of a country that has been set back. In handing over the documents to the federal... Nigeria's life post-independence has been turbulent. Periods of civilian governance have been punctuated with military coups and dictatorships. It was only in 1999 that the last military ruler stepped down. There have been moments of political reckoning since then. Most recently in 2020, when widespread anger at rampant police brutality united young Nigerians behind a common cause. SARS was a notorious police squad responsible for extreme violence, including rape, torture and executions. The protests sent a clear signal of a growing number of politically aware and active young Nigerians. There's a common saying where people go, oh, maybe young people or Nigerians don't like to read, but our numbers show that people are invested in reading as long as your story is interesting, right? NSAS was a turning point, was a very visible turning point. And since then, there, even with the work that we, we're doing, we've seen growth in the participation of young people and their interest in engaging with these stories. I think once you can show people how a thing affects them, that's how you get their interest, right? Um, and so I guess that's what archiving helps with. Work on the newspaper archive has been underway for three years now. Getting it online and within clicking distance for Nigerians is imminent. When the archive does go live, it will just be the end of the beginning. There are many decades of newsprint yet to be sourced, digitized and catalogued. Numerous stories and narratives to be uncovered. And you are going to find tensions, contradictions, conflicts in all those newspapers. How one issue generates different perspectives, regional perspectives, religious perspectives, local perspectives. And it's the business of the historian to reconcile all these perspectives. So there's just no doubt about it that this is a project of, of enormous, tremendous significance. I think of the work we are doing as we are digging a public well, a public utility. And the thing about public utilities is that they have unlimited utility. All kinds of people are going to make all kinds of things. Uh, we cannot even begin to quantify the potential impact of the work we are doing. And finally, some Indian news anchors went on the warpath this past week. That's par for the course. The country has almost 400 24-hour news channels, the vast majority of which support Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party, the BJP. If that means backing Modi's Hindutva nationalist agenda, dealing in hate speech and endangering Muslims and other minorities, so be it. Now, politicians from an alliance of more than two dozen opposition parties say they're done with that. They've named 14 hosts whose programs they will now boycott if only Indian news consumers would do the same. <laughs>
As for the hosts involved, this boycott just provides them with more content, another wedge to drive between audiences that need to be informed rather than incited. We'll see you next time here at the Listen Post. And I want to say to them today, as they bring out this laughable, ridiculous boycott threat, bring it on. The people of this country are with us, with me. Wow, yes, low clap. Gajar. ताली मारना चाहिए चौदह लोग मिलके 140 करोड़ लोगों में नफरत फैला दे रहे हैं गजब का टैलेंट है हम लोगों में नहीं और ये चौदह लोग आपने बॉयकॉट कर दिया अब तो देश में कोई नफरत नहीं बचेगी क्यों मतलब तीन प्रतिशत पत्रकार ऐसे हैं जिनके सवालों से इंडिया गठबंधन थर काप रहा है इंडिया गठबंधन को उनके सवाल चुभ रहे हैं आप सोचे देश में चार हजार से ज्यादा न्यूज एंकर उनमें से सिर्फ चौदह का क्या मतलब